from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. New York has a puzzle it needs to solve fast. New York State is expanding its solar energy goals. Governor Kathy Hochul is looking to more than triple New York's solar energy capacity within the next decade. In less than a decade, the state wants to radically increase the amount of renewable electricity to 50%, all while helping New Yorkers electrify their homes and businesses, increasing total demand for electricity, and then eliminate a key nuclear power plant at the same time. New York is attempting to wean itself off of fossil fuels. At the same time, it's taking another major source of carbon-free electricity offline, the Indian Point nuclear power plant. In 2019, this facility alone was responsible for 13% of the state's power. Most of the wind and solar planned for the state will get installed in rural areas or offshore, and the grid infrastructure getting it to the city isn't ready to bring it in. Natural gas facilities are expected to make up the difference, resulting in an increase in carbon emissions in the short term. Still, others say the switch to renewables can't wait. New York's ambitious policy plan, which will eventually bring 70% renewables by 2050, will succeed or fail based on how it can develop the supporting infrastructure, like transmission, ports, batteries. So how will the nuts and bolts of New York's energy transition play out? This week, we have a panel from our recent live event featuring the journalists covering decarbonization and energy markets in New York. This panel was recorded in mid-October at the WNYC studios in Manhattan. It was part of our live doubleheader, which also included an episode of Climavores. Thanks to everyone for coming out. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. And I'm going to hand it over to Canary Media senior reporter Julian Spector in a minute. Before I do, I just want to acknowledge the sponsors of our event. One is Rise Light and Power. Rise Light and Power is the new owner of Ravenswood Generating, New York City's largest power plant. Its recently launched Renewable Ravenswood Plan charts a clear path to the retirement of aging fossil fuel generators, replacing them with renewable energy. In addition to keeping the lights on for more than 2 million homes, this transformation will deliver a historic victory for environmental justice and preserve nearly 100 union jobs. To learn more, visit riselight.com. This special episode is also brought to you by Sealed. In winter, it's chilly. In summer, it's stuffy. Your heat and AC are working 24-7, which means you're using more energy and spending more money just to keep comfortable. That's not good for you or the planet. Say goodbye to energy waste and hello to comfort with Sealed. Get started with a free energy audit. Visit sealed.com slash carbon copy. And now, here is Julian Spector. Hello, New York City. Uh, there's a there's a Yankees game on, and you're here with us. That that says a lot. Um, but I think uh, we're going to try to make this panel kind of clean energy version of Aaron Judge. It's all homers all night, but no drugs, no drugs. So, um, so I'm Julian Spector. I'm a senior reporter at Canary Media. I get to roam around the world and seek out, you know, compelling stories at the front lines of the transition to clean energy. Um, that means I've been living in much sunnier, warmer environments than New York City. Uh, and uh, since arriving here a few weeks ago, I've been called things like nice and earnest and <laughs> told I should really try to find at least one thing I can complain about uh, convincingly. So we couldn't just leave me up here alone. We needed to find some actual New Yorkers who uh, have, you know, some opinions to share, some facts and, and some, uh, you know, hard truths. Because we are here tonight to evaluate New York's progress towards its very ambitious climate goals. Um, we have some great people to, to break that down for us, though. So uh, starting here right on my right, Marie French from Politico. She's uh, 
over in Albany covering the ins and outs of the, the you know, center of power for the state. Want to do some applause for that? She's got, you probably read her work. Probably read her work. I'd just like to point out I don't identify as a New Yorker. I'm not a native New Yorker, but I am an upstate New Yorker. Upstate New Yorker. <laughs> that counts. That counts. Um, yeah. So then we have Samantha Maldonado with The City uh, covering all sorts of aspects of how climate impacts New York City and, uh, you know, how the, the um, government here is working on decarbonizing all facets of, of society. Let's hear it for Sam. And then my colleague, Maria Gallucci, who's also based in the city here and has done some great work on the, the arrival of the wind power coming and the, the changes to the economy here as a result of the clean energy. It's, it's uh, great to be in person with you. Thanks. You too. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So, so we don't want to do too much preamble. We want to get into, you know, the really like breaking down the, the major areas of action on uh, New York's climate goals. Um, felt like I should just set up a, a couple of the like high level trends here. So this state um, is moving towards 100 percent carbon free energy. Um, the deadline for that is 2040. And uh, that also needs to be 70 percent renewable at that time. Um, now, if you look at the way the energy system works right now, statewide, it's it's pretty good. It's like 50 percent zero emission. Uh, a lot of that's actually hydro and, and the nuclear that you all have allowed to continue running. Um, but if you break down the, the state into like upstate versus downstate, the New York area, uh, the New York City area, I should say, it, it's pretty filthy. And it's not just the, the piles of garbage on the sidewalks and the rats and all those fun things I've been getting to see. Um, it's that there's very little clean energy anywhere near this metropolis uh, where many, many millions of people live. Um, so, you know, there's a few high-level uh, challenges there. One is you need more clean energy total, but you also need to find ways to get it into this enormous city with lots of people uh, and to try to do that without breaking the bank. So that is that is not easy. And to the extent that we're going to be trying to find places where progress hasn't kept up with the ambitions, you know, that's not to be mean. That's just to say, like, where, where, where do we need to try even harder? What needs to, what needs to be changed in the, in the course of action? And then what is actually, you know, on track and, and looking good? Um, so let's start with the renewable energy build out. That's kind of the, the crux of the, the strategy here. Build clean energy, electrify everything else. So let's start with offshore wind. Uh, states, you know, doesn't have much of it right now. In fact, there's, there's, Approximately none, right? Um, but does anyone want to kick us off with uh, your, your, your view on, you know, is the state on track uh, with its offshore wind ambitions? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so just to uh, throw out some stats. So New York has a goal of building nine gigawatts of offshore wind power by 2035, I believe. And that would uh, supply about 30% of the state's total electricity needs. Right now, there's 4.3 gigawatts worth of projects in the pipeline and if everything goes as uh, the developers say it will, the first project, South Fork Wind, might be have turbines spinning in the water by the end of next year. Um, right now, they are just starting kind of the early construction phases on the land side of things. So I guess the next couple years will tell us, be a good indication of how quickly things are going to keep on track. 
there's a lot of prep and a lot of promises <laughs> in terms of jobs and what communities will get out of these turbines that will come and all of the ancillary things that come with them, whether they're substations or uh, transmission lines and everything, manufacturing that goes with that. But yeah, as Maria says, it's really a matter of how many years will it take and what kind of delays will we see moving forward? Yeah, and I think it's important to note that these projects, you know, when they were first announced, the, the first two that have state contracts when they were announced in 2019 by Governor Andrew Cuomo, you know, they were supposed to be online, I think, uh, 2024, May 2024 and end of 2024 for the two projects. And of course, those dates are now 2025 and 2026 um, for them to, to actually be generating. And I don't think uh, we should ignore the fact that to actually achieve the state's, you know, ultimate 2030 and 2040 goals, we're going to need a whole lot more offshore wind than just nine gigawatts. We're going to need much more than that. I think the Climate Action Council, you know, supporting analysis calls for about, I want to say double what the state goal is by that year. So it's, you know, a massive amount that needs to be built out even beyond what the state's planning to contract for right now. Okay. Wow. A lot, a lot going on there. So it's, even though there's nothing on, no, no points on the board just yet, there's a lot of the preparatory work in, in progress, but even the, even the goal that is being pushed might not, might not be enough to, to meet the long-term goal of cleaning up the grid. So let, let's move to solar in California, where I've been living. That's obviously the leading new source of uh, clean energy, but uh, it's a little different out here. It's a little grayer, maybe, you know, not, not so much of the sunshine out here. So w- w- what do we need to know about the solar sector of New York State? We're going to need a lot of it, uh, <laughs> like crazy amounts. Um, and we're still seeing, I think, a lot of difficulty with permitting. Um, ORES, the Office of Renewable Energy Siting, which is the new state office that was set up to, to do permitting and speed it up, essentially, for renewable developers, is still staffing up. Uh, and it's been two years. So, you know, we're It's, it's we're hard to find waiting. good people these days, you Pandemic know? Pandemic years, so. too. It's, uh, <laughs> it's been tough. It's been tough, for sure. I think when we think about solar, we think about the solar panels on homes or community solar where people can sort of plug into a project and get the benefits um, themselves and then utility scale solar. And, uh, you know, they're both important in different ways, especially in terms of individuals engaging with like clean energy. Um, But we're just not there on either account. And in New York City in particular, it's really hard to site solar no matter what. Um, There's some old fire codes that make it really hard to put on roofs and things like that. And we just don't have the space to do utility scale solar. And so, you know, there's, well, I'm sure we'll talk about this more, but there's transmission lines in the works that would in part bring solar down uh, to the city to help clean up the grid. But we're not there yet. <laughs> this is kind of the theme of this night, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just to throw out another stat. Um, so that New York City has a goal of installing one gigawatt with a solar by 2030. And I believe has about a third, is about a third of the way there. So 300 megawatts. And uh, the sense is that, um, it's possible to to meet that goal, but they the city would really have to accelerate what's happening. And and as Sam just mentioned, there's a lot of challenges to doing that. Um, one project I, I recently visited the Javits Center, which if I suppose you probably know if you're if you're in New York, but if not, it's this massive convention center not too far from here. And it was interesting to learn about how they figured out how to put solar panels on the roof because there were all of these. Uh, HVAC units kind of sprinkled around where they wanted to build. And so they had, and a a lot of um, grasses that they had put to absorb stormwater runoff. So Mm. it was kind of the green roof conflicting a bit with the solar panel, the the solar powered roof. So they did find a way to build around that. But I think that it was a good example of the sort of unique complications that New York City faces 
And I mean, this project also is in the shadow of all of these skyscrapers that are built, being built um, on the west side. So, and that's an eternal kind of factor for New York City. Yeah, it's colder here because you guys don't have as much sun because it's blocked <laughs> yeah. by the buildings. <laughs> if you stand in the right angle. <laughs> that's why you try so hard to get it up on the roof and then someone builds a new billionaire uh, residence that's just blocking all your sun. You can't do anything about that. So yeah, I, I think the solar, it's, it's, it's tough out here. I think New York City is a good uh, counter example to the, the sort of vision of the clean energy future that's all small scale and every home just puts it on the roof because, you know, you have too many people living in very tall buildings that don't have the roof space relative to the, the actual occupants here. So that points to the need to build more elsewhere in the state and, and pipe it in somehow. I did want to shout out, you know, New York is, I mean, there, there is a big distributed, you know, small scale solar uh, across the state in the sense that there's actually very little large scale solar getting built. So to the extent that I think they just crashed Four, four gigawatts installed of distributed. And, you know, there's a lot on roofs. There's a lot of community solar, people in the community solar industry talk about New York as the leading example of, you know, policies in, intended to help people subscribe to solar without needing it on their own roof or, or even owning a roof. Um, you know, so that's, that's a, a, a part of it here. But uh, it, it's certainly not showing up as big as it is in, in other states like in the in the West. or I mean, I think uh, according to the Solar Energy Industry Association, I didn't see New York on the top 10 list of installed. Like New Jersey was on there, Massachusetts, but not, not New York as of the last quarter. So, okay, moving on to one that's uh, near and dear to my heart, energy storage, big batteries, uh, basically. Um, that's generally considered crucial to taking the, the ups and downs of wind and solar production and making it available at the times you actually need it. Um, you know, what's going on with batteries? Anyone, anyone been able to go see the opening of a, a very large battery in New York anywhere? Certainly not in New York City. Uh, not large, certainly not. Um, I think obviously, you know, I, th I think a lot of folks are familiar with the Con Ed RFP where they didn't award any large battery project, um, which was somewhat upsetting uh, for some people, I'm sure. Uh, maybe, maybe we should explain that for the people who aren't familiar, but, you know, so oh, Con Ed, okay. Utility, I just assumed you, you were know? all energy nerds. I thought oh, they are, they are. Here. Let's not impugn <laughs> our audience here. Oh, sorry. <laughs> really good at this, guys. Um, <laughs> But uh, Con Ed uh, was required by the Public Service Commission to issue a, a utility scale request for proposals for um, battery storage. I believe 300 megawatts was the, the target. I mean, other, other utilities were also required to issue RFPs, but they were like, you know, 10, 20 megawatts. They didn't have to go as big as Con Ed because we're going to need a lot more storage in New York City uh, than we are probably in other parts of the state to, to meet the, the ultimate goals here. And they didn't award any, uh, and that was sad. But they're going to issue a new one in, in fall 2022. So later, presumably in the next few months. I haven't seen it come out yet. Yeah. So, and I, I did a little digging because I, I like writing about batteries. Um, but yeah, there, there was this one awarded to a company called 174 Power Global. Um, I think it originally talked about being coming on this year. Now it's maybe next year. That'll be 100 megawatts in uh, Astoria. So, you know, that is a sizable battery. Um, but yeah, there's just been much smaller development so far. And, and there's certainly state policies uh, giving grants and, and funding to get 
battery storage built, but there isn't what you would call a, a thriving market for it. Uh, and I think people are still figuring out the business model that makes sense. It's hard to get financing for a, a battery project if you can't look at anyone in the in this state and say that they made a profit by investing in this kind of asset. Um, so that's a that's a challenge. Um, and yeah, so there is a storage target uh, on the books, but the initial 2022 deadline got pushed back to 2025 because no one was going to make it in time. So I would say that one's maybe maybe not on track yet, but it could it could turn around um, at some point. Also, fire code is really hard in New York City. It's yeah. uh, we face it, a lot of the same challenges with solar that we do for battery storage installation here because of fire code situations. Which um, you know, in some in some ways, it's smart. You hear about you know the batteries for e-bikes blowing up. <laughs> in different housing, which is sad. Um, and we don't want that to happen, but there has to be a way to sort of be able to permit this, these batteries because we need them. Um, and I know the mayor, Eric Adams, has sort of proposed this zoning text resolution to change the way that we're allowed to build different developments in different places. Um, and there's one called, I think it's called Zoning for Zero Carbon. And he says it would make it easier for us to be able to install battery storage and sort of like larger, larger scale, city-sized scale renewables places. Um, but we have not seen any of that text yet. So still waiting. We'll see how it goes once we see it maybe later next year is what I've heard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and, oh, yeah. Oh, I was just going to add, you know, on, on the battery issue, I think a lot of uh, the industry and me, because I love to write about roadmaps, is waiting for the energy storage roadmap 2.0. 2.0? <laughs> what, what happened uh, to 1.0? Uh, we're done with that. We already, oh, okay. We, it's, we, it's, it's, it's totally it's, over. We're we, past, past that. I think they basically got, like, the subsidies, like, under that have already been, you know, subscri- oversubscribed and okay. not uh, totally subscribed. So energy storage roadmap 2.0 could have, could give us a better idea of what kind of state subsidies and contracts will be available for the storage industry so they'll actually you know none of these developers or or the incumbent generators that I talk to who are you know thinking about storage plan to build it without a long-term contract or, or support of some kind there's no no ability to do that in the current energy mar- markets and and do we know when that roadmap comes i, I can't say <laughs> all right. All right. Um, well, yeah, then I, I, I mean, just to kind of cap off this whole clean energy build out section, um, wanted to talk about just reliability and this idea of, you know, we're shifting from fossil powered plants that we can control and call up when we need them. Um, the offshore wind is coming. There's maybe more solar coming. Maybe the batteries will arrive. But how, how do you is see the state tying all these different pieces together into a fundamentally new way of running the grid that has to keep all the lights on in New York City, has to keep the subway running, the elevators going up and down, um, you know, without without burning fossil fuels like we do today. Uh, like, the, you know, have you seen a, a com- compelling policy work that all these different threads are going to be tied together in a, in a way that works? Are you asking who's in charge? <laughs> uh, that could be that could be part of it. Yeah, 
Yeah, well, I mean, the Public Service Commission and uh, NISO, our grid operator, I, and Marie can correct me if I'm wrong, which is true for literally everything I'm about to say in this whole panel, but, um, <laughs> you know, they're, they're supposed to make sure that, you know, our power can stay on, that we have enough, uh, you know, resources that are dispatchable to use when we need them to make sure that we're not overtaxing our grid and to make sure it is, you know, dependable and, and hardy uh, <laughs> for times of, like, climate change and also just in terms of, yeah, having demand be met by what's there, what's available? Yeah, I think you'll, you've kind of asked the question that I feel like the state has avoided answering uh, fairly successfully so far. Uh, what is the dispatchable emissions-free resource that we need, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of, of megawatts and uh, gigawatts of? Um, and we don't really know the answer yet, but I will remind everyone that the climate law has off-ramps. The Public Service Commission, if it con is concerned about reliability, can, you know, be like, well, I guess we're not going to hit zero emissions by 2040. Will they want to do that? No, I don't think they will. Are they trying, you know, I mean, policymakers are trying very hard to hit these targets, but there are some questions that they haven't answered yet. And part of that is because, you know, we want to see what technologies emerge, but part of it is because these are politically difficult questions to answer. A quick pause here to talk about our sponsors. Rise Light and Power is the new owner of Ravenswood Generating, New York City's largest power plant. Its recently launched renewable Ravenswood plan charts a clear path to the retirement of aging fossil fuel generators, replacing them with new sources of renewable energy like offshore wind and solar from upstate New York. By repurposing existing infrastructure and replacing fossil fuel generation in the heart of New York City, Renewable Ravenswood makes it easier and more cost-effective to meet New York's ambitious climate goals. In addition to keeping the lights on for more than 2 million homes, this transformation will be a model for a just transition to sustainability, delivering a historic victory for environmental justice and preserving nearly 100 union jobs. To learn more and get involved, visit riselight.com. We're also brought to you by Sealed. Air is a genius at getting into your home through holes in the foundation, cracks in the attic, even places you wouldn't expect like recessed lighting fixtures. You can't see the problem, but you sure can feel it. You're spending money on AC and heat all year long without even being comfortable. That's not good for you or the planet. But what happens if you keep the air outside? Suddenly your house feels better. It uses less energy. New windows won't make you this comfortable, but there's a company that can. Sealed uses air sealing and insulation to keep the outside out. They can also upgrade your heating system. And when it comes to efficiency, they're not just full of hot air. If you don't save energy with Sealed, they don't get paid. Learn more at sealed.com slash carbon copy. Yeah, off-ramps, that could be important. Um, I was just in Hawaii where they, they shut down the last coal plant, and that was dictated by a law specifically to end the use of coal. Uh, and there wasn't sort of a, an asterisk around and make sure all the solar plants have been built before you do that. So it got a little a little dicey. It ended up being okay. No one lost power, um, but they're they're burning a bit more oil in the meantime, and prices are going up because all the new reinforcements weren't weren't there. So yeah, a little flexibility as opposed to dictating hard terms. Absent, you know, knowing the reality on the ground is. Uh, good to, to have that. Um, well, let's uh, keep moving to the next section, which is buildings. Um, buildings as a sector is uh, now the biggest source of carbon emissions in the, in the state. Uh, so you got to do something about that. And as anyone who lives in the city knows, there's a lot of old buildings here. Uh, they are not the most energy efficient. 
is fuel oil in the basement keeping the keeping the heat going through the winter it's a it's kind of a it's kind of a gnarly problem i think so um let's start with uh you know one of the hot policy ideas in the in the building decarbonization world which is banning gas uh you know fossil gas or natural gas in new building construction um and that kind of forces developers to electrify the appliances and, and you know, heat and, and do, you know, your water and cooking without fossil fuels. Um, and New York City is actually taking some action on this. So um, maybe, Sam, is that is that something yeah. you want to take? Well, New York City did it. <laughs> they, okay. they put a, uh, yeah, a ban on gas new construction. I believe it starts in, oh, now I'm for the year. But I, 2026? I think it's on the paper, so you should check. But... Um, <laughs> I believe it's that, and it depends on uh, how how many stories your building is. The you know smaller the the fewer the stories, the sooner it is, and the taller the building, the later it is. Um, but essentially, yeah, it has to be electric. Can't have any gas or fossil fuels burning. Um, and we've definitely seen some of these buildings already that are being built or have been built, um, both affordable housing, for example, and market rate units that have you know heat pumps and electric or induction stoves. Um, and, you know, you hear different tales about how much did it cost to build? How are the residents enjoying it or not enjoying it? Um, but what I am always told by you know, different developers is it's not only about electrifying, it's about keeping these buildings really uh, efficient and having like a very strong building envelope. Um, so it doesn't take as much energy uh, to, to heat them or cool them, which ultimately can fall to the tenants in them. Um, but anyway, that is one thing that is happening, and uh, it's it's leading the state, I would say. Um, Ithaca also has uh, a goal for, I believe, all-electric buildings, all-electric everything maybe, by a certain date in the mid-2020s, um, if not a little bit later. Uh, but otherwise, the state hasn't done it yet. They have punted. There was a bill in the session this last time, and they did not pass it, um, even though the Climate Action Council, which is the body that's tasked with, you know, figuring out how to meet our climate goals, um, they did recommend to have uh, all-electric buildings mandated. Gotcha. Well, that sounds like an Albany drama there. So, Marie, uh, so can you fill us in on what, um, what, what happened? Why, why didn't the idea that flies in New York City uh, work in the, in the state capitol? Because uh, uh, the state capital also has people from upstate and Long Island. Oh, yes. that's yeah. and they are they're, they're New Yorkers too. Or are they? Still, I, are we, I believe they still consider it? themselves New Yorkers. Oh, okay, yes. cool, cool. Yes, gotcha. they do. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was a it was definitely a huge push uh, this past session to try to get you know some type of all electric buildings. I think their best shot was, of course, in the budget, uh, where many more things can get done politically. Uh, and that didn't happen. Uh, Senate Democrats were on board. The governor's office was on board. Um, but the Assembly Democrats were not there yet. Uh, and, you know, TBD on whether they're there, you know, next year in terms of supporting that. I think uh, it's definitely tricky to to say to, say, an upstate utility that's a gas-only utility. We're going to prevent you from ever having additional customers uh, and— uh, they're pushing back hard. I mean, the fossil fuel industry spent money running ads, you know, attacking Hochul over this issue. Uh, and they were, you know, if you look at it from the results, they were successful in the sense that it didn't happen uh, this past year. And now the Climate Council is considering pushing back the whole timeline about a year because of the way that the international building codes are coming out later and they need more time to sort of integrate it if they do it through the Building Codes Council rather than just legislatively. Do you, do you get the sense that there's 
opportunity to come back next year and try again? Like, was this a, a temporary setback or? It's, it's not an election year. Mm. Which I think uh, will will definitely make it a little easier for some people to support it. You know whether the the results of the election actually you know hurt that goal is uh, is you know talk to me week after the election, please. Thank you. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, so that's for new buildings. Um, what about all the old buildings? You know, it's it's a lot easier to, to fit the new technology into a brand new design than a retrofit, which is expensive and time consuming, but you got a lot of old buildings. So um, have you reported on any kind of promising policy efforts to uh, try to try to reach the existing built environment? Yeah, I don't know about promising, but there is a law called Local Law 97. And it, I mean, if you live in New York City, you probably have heard about it. Um, but it, it mandates that Every building over a certain amount of square feet, I believe it's 25K, uh, it has to have emissions limits that they have to meet. Um, and I think a lot of them, do, the, the city says most of the buildings um, that will you know, need to adhere to this law already meet those caps or will with very, very few retrofits. Um, but that's sort of the big question. Like, how do they do this? How are they going to pay for it? Um, and it's different when it's you know, maybe a luxury condo building versus these little or I shouldn't say little because they're over 25K uh, square feet, but, you know, these these sort of like lower middle class co-ops in the middle of Brooklyn or something like that um, that really do run on, you know, fuel uh, boilers that would just put them over the emissions limit or they have to retrofit or figure out how to, you know, pop in heat pumps <laughs> uh, and do all these different fixes. Um, it's like, how are they going to do that physically? How does that construction work? And how are they going to pay for it is, are the big questions. Um, and these laws, I mean, they have to start complying by 2024, but the rules for like what guides the laws and how they would even calculate their emissions and their penalties are, just haven't, haven't been finalized yet. So we're still waiting on that. And, and I imagine you don't want to be, as a building owner, making investments and picking new technologies until all the details are laid out so you don't get dinged for something you, you didn't expect? Yeah. I mean, the way I've seen it in my reporting so far is you know, there's some buildings where their co-op boards or whoever manages it are really on top of this. And they've been asking the questions and starting to sort of roll forward some of these retrofits. Um, but they don't know the final, you know, they don't know the final rules. They don't know what it's going to look like at the end. Uh, and then there's others that have just sort of pushed it off and they are really under capacity or they ha they don't have the money to hire these consultants that will do this work for them. Um, so I think they're going to have to either get with it really soon or, I don't know, they'll have to get some, you know, financial penalties as per the law. One thing, maybe it seems obvious, but I was a little surprised to learn that like space is also constraint for electrification in New York City buildings. Like, where do you put that heat pump, or or when you're swapping out the existing infrastructure, it ultimately changes the footprint and can conflict with what's there. And so that was we think about space constraint from a solar standpoint. That's kind of obvious, but this is an additional challenge, just figuring out where things go. Um, there's another, there's an initiative, uh, the Empire Building Challenge, that's also working, um, I, I believe it's a voluntary effort, um, but also kind of going after these large existing uh, high-rises. And it's interesting, there's a, a set I remember reading that you could get toward 80% electrification kind of using existing technologies with retrofits, with massive uh, reductions in energy consumption. Obviously, that costs money, but it's sort of encouraging in some ways to think that you don't need some totally new gadget to get most of the way there. 
Yeah, I, I mean, it, it does strike me that the building space, I mean, it's, it's earlier kind of across the clean energy industry. Uh, you know, if, if you're getting solar, you're saving money at this point. Uh, and if you're doing community solar in New York, you're, you're definitely saving money. Um, it seems much less clear and, and very site specific on the, on the electrifying the buildings. Uh, you know, it's harder to get mass buy-in if uh, the, the appliances themselves aren't sort of well-known and out in the, in the public zeitgeist. So uh, that seems challenging. This is one where, you know, a lot of the southwestern states, it's just not the same kind of need to heat uh, in very bitterly cold winters. Um, so I don't envy this, this challenge for y'all. Um, let's go on to our last section, and then we're going to get audience questions after, after this. But we, we want to get into the, the energy equity uh, topic, which is, you know, crucial. There's all these changes, but um, in the process of transitioning the, the economy and the energy system, um, is this data accounting for people who've been hurt and, and harmed by the, the old polluting forms uh, and where, where the facilities are sited, whose backyard it's in? Um, and also uh, there's the workforce dimension of, you know, changing the way the economy works to different fuel sources and, and are, are workers able to have a, a foothold in the new world? Um, and then, you know, we've raised the issue of cost and a lot of these changes are being driven by policies and, you know, someone's bearing the cost for that. So I think that'll be good to, to dig into. Um, so uh, I think one energy equity policy that New York has New York City has done, and and I don't know if anyone else has done something quite like this. Is this uh, rule on dirty peaker plants? So these are the fossil fuel plants that are rarely used, but they fire up when when there's really intense demand. So summer heat wave, everyone's running the air conditioning, and they they tend to be the dirtiest uh, facilities on the grid, and and a lot of them in in town here are also. 50, 60 years old. Um, so there is a rule to, uh, to, to, to do something about that, n- noting that they're often cited in disadvantaged communities or minority communities. Um, so do we want to fill our audience in on like with the status of this rule? Um, yeah, so the, it's, a, it's a statewide, you know, the DEC says, you know, we have too many of these peakers that are emitting a lot of NOx emissions, which are, you know, create the smog and have very harmful uh, health effects, so we're going to start to phase phase those out. You know, 2023, um, some of these regulations go into effect. Some peakers have already started to shut down. Um, more will be shutting down in 2023, 2025 um, timeframe. And uh, right now, you know, it's it's sort of a question as the New York Independent System Operator looks at those plans: um, Can New York City still reliably keep the lights on? And so far, in terms of their short-term reliability assessments, they've said, yeah, it looks like we'll be okay, but there are some definite issues uh, in the coming years if some other things happen. If demand is higher than we expect, if there's an extreme heat wave, if there is, you know, um, if Chippy, uh, the Champlain-Hudson Power Express, doesn't come online, you know, when it's currently forecasted to come online, uh, there could be some reliability issues that the NISO itself has said, you know, this could mean that the peakers need to stay on longer. Yeah. Well, and then on a fundamental level, I mean, so this is very important work to be, you know, getting rid of the most harmful of the of the old polluting plants. Um, 
if you are shutting down those peakers in New York and not building batteries, uh, which would be this sort of zero emission on-demand technology that's available today to replace them, uh, how, how long can you keep doing that, of shutting down your, your in-city capacity and then not building new firm capacity to replace it? Well, I don't think batteries, right now, battery storage technology is not necessarily a one-to-one replacement for peakers, right? We don't necessarily have a battery that can run for several days or, you know, 12 plus hours and batteries need to recharge, which puts an additional demand on the grid afterwards. So I think um, the expectation is more that offshore wind and transmission lines coming into the city will play a bigger role in replacing the peakers than perhaps battery storage. Although that's I don't think that's entirely true because I think there will be a, a role for batteries to play for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, don't, they definitely don't want can't. to offend any of the battery developers. We we, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They can be useful to have, but you're right. They don't, they don't go for 24 hours straight. Um, but, but that's interesting. So getting back to the sort of port, portfolio emerging, if you don't have power sources generating in the city, but you have offshore wind pumping in from, from the ocean that's, you know, able to connect into the grid you maybe don't need the same capacity operating within city boundaries as we used to. Ooh, now you're getting into like locational reserve margin. Yeah, yeah. So we, well, we don't need to go, and, uh, go too far down that route. Um, <laughs> but let's talk about the just transition for workers. Um, I was very intrigued by a piece that my colleague Maria did uh, recently on um, how the terminal uh, in in Brooklyn is seeing new, new, a new future coming as the shift to clean energy happens. So can you talk about what, what sort of new jobs, new economic drivers are happening in the city uh, as a result of this shift? Yeah, so there's um, a project actually in, in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, um, not too far from where I live, uh, to transform this abandoned, uh, the South Brooklyn Marine Terminal, which hasn't been used for decades, uh, into a hub for storing and assembling and repairing offshore wind farms. Um, or sorry, offshore wind turbines that will go to service the wind farms that Equinor and BP are developing off the coast of New York. And the local community, especially groups like Uprose, New York City Environmental Justice Alliance, have been very involved in in kind of uh, having a say in what kind of project comes to the waterfront, but then also now that it's going to be this offshore wind hub, making sure that they have a seat at the table and kind of being being engaged, the, their goal is to make sure that those jobs, which the primarily will be construction jobs at the site to start, but then um, hundreds kind of involved in the turbine assembly and um, kind of operations there, uh, they they want to make sure that Sunset Park residents are actually working at that hub that's going up in their backyard, especially um, sort of given the history of environmental justice issues in that area. Speaking of peaker plants, uh, there's a couple nearby in Sunset Park. There's also a lot of heavy truck traffic, other industrial facilities that contribute kind of an outsized share of pollution to the neighborhood. Yeah. And um, Sam or Maria, have you, have you covered any other instances of, of new new job creation that's kind of giving giving the community uh, more of a voice and a say in the, in the, the emerging clean energy system? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that pops up a lot, especially in New York with, uh, you know, the retrofits on the horizon to get buildings uh, cleaner is um, just teaching people and people who have been like 
traditionally left out of the workforce uh, and doing a lot of job development to, to teach them how to do these installations, whether that's like solar panels or, um, you know, home retrofits. And today I know this big company called Block Power, which probably a lot of you know, uh, just announced sort of a, a wider, um, an expansion of their job training program. Um, and it sort of, uh, you know, dovetails with criminal justice and, um, you know, interrupting violence in certain neighborhoods. Uh, but that's been really interesting to see. And that's, uh, I mean, I think with every sort of clean energy promise. There's always the flag that people wave about jobs coming. Um, and so we're sort of, you know, it's to be seen, but some of the training is happening now, which is pretty interesting. Um, and the other concern is, you know, jobs that will be lost, uh, which is something that comes up a lot with uh, it, the state policies in general, less, I think, about the city here. Um, but, you know, fossil fuel workers, for example, are really concerned that they will be left out or, uh, you know, won't have jobs to go to in a decade or less. Um, and I think Marie can speak more about this, but, you know, those sort of concerns um, manifested in a new policy that actually did get, you know, it was a law that got passed uh, in the session last time. It was really like labor and environmentalists coming together um, to pass this this bill that would um, mandate geothermal network pilots uh, in the city and around the state for each utility. Yeah, I think that was definitely... Um you know, as you, as you mentioned, I think it's a an example of of labor really fa- flexing its its power. Um, we've seen labor do that a few times, but that bill in particular, I think, as it gets implemented, will tell us a lot about sort of what the future of some gas utilities is. You know, is there going to be a way for them to create a new business model where they're delivering the service of heat rather than the service of gas to combust to create heat in your home? Um, and I think there's a lot of there's a lot of questions of the, about that. The Public Service Commission uh, members have been kind of critical about the timeline for that legislation. Uh, they they they're like we're we're going to need more time to figure some of this out. So they're giving the utilities a little bit more time to flesh out their pilot ideas and uh, actually implement them. Um, but those those should be really interesting to watch and um, to see you know how labor gets to play a role in in shaping those as well. Yeah. Great. Well, so then let's talk about affordability. Um, is a macro level inflation happening and energy is, is costing families more and more? Uh, there's a lot of programs here that, you know, are, are not really market driven at this point. Um, I think the, you know, generally speaking, the clean energy is is competitive and that'll be cheaper in the long run than um, equivalent fossil fuels. But then once you get into all the all the work that it takes to keep the system reliable, costs can start adding up, and uh, as we mentioned, retrofitting all the old buildings is a whole whole big thing. Um, so, c- can you talk about you know in general how is New York State paying for all of these uh, you know rather leading efforts to to change the uh, away from fossil fuels? Maybe Marie. That's the several hundred billion dollar question. Um, I you know I think that's. TBD for sure. I mean, right now, obviously, the Climate Action Council is is talking about that finally. Um, I've sat through so many meetings, guys. <laughs> how, how long are these meetings? Uh, roughly, some of them, now they're they're down to about three hours at a time. That's the uh, slim I've, there's, version. There's been longer ones. Okay. Uh, mm. But so, you know, right now, the thing they talked about was like, could we do a carbon tax or could we do some type of cap and invest economy-wide on, you know, um, greenhouse gas emissions? And Basically, I think it, a lot of it's going to come down to legislative willpower uh, in the upcoming session, but also, you know, what they can actually do 
on the executive side without legislation, because there is pretty vast authority in the climate law for the DEC to, to implement regulations um, to support the plan. And then what about, you know, just utility customers paying their bills and, and money going from those to kind of fund f- pilot programs and all the various things? Yeah, well, the way that this clean energy market will be set up, the economy really is through like subsidies and uh other sorts of like benefits to, um, I'm forgetting the word anyway, but it, basically it's like on the taxpayers and on ratepayers, which is just people. Um, and there's been no accounting for what that might cost. There's no real projections. Uh, and I think that's a big question mark in people's minds. Um, there's always the promise and, you know, it's, we've seen it bear out in some, some cases that, you know, clean energy is cheaper than fossil fuels. Um, but ultimately we just don't know how much it's going to fall onto the individual consumer, uh, to really like push these programs forward and to sort of, um, under underwrite them essentially, um, and already in the past year, in part because of the pandemic, we've seen really uh, high like cases of um, utility debts that lots of people have. And I haven't looked at the numbers in a while, but it, they were they were just far and uh, away the highest numbers that we've seen basically. Um, so that's a real crisis. <laughs> we don't know how necessarily people are going to pay that. Um, and and just how they will sort of burden, uh, you know, share this burden and and uh, be able to afford it, essentially. And I don't know the extent to which this will kind of trickle down to individuals, but the Inflation Reduction Act, um, I think it was Nyserda said it should pump like $70 billion into New York State from now through 2050 in, term, in the form of, you know, tax credits for heat pumps or electric vehicles or in tax credits for utilities that previously couldn't participate in those programs, like rural co-ops and municipalities. Um, so that, uh, I, I believe this is Nyserda said this, it, that money, that $70 billion, won't necessarily accelerate the clean energy transition here, but it will make it more affordable, at least in in terms of helping to pay for some of some of those programs. Yeah, wow, that was that was a lot of ground to cover. I wasn't sure if we'd fit everything in, but we we got through the we got through the outline, we got through the questions. <laughs> um, I uh, am just really appreciative to all three of our, our panelists. What did, what did you all think? What did you, did you like that? Thanks so much to uh, Julian Spector, to the Canary team, and the journalists who participated. And uh, thanks to everyone who came out. Sorry I couldn't make it. I was dealing with a sickness, and uh, it was a bummer not to be there, but it was a really great event. And you're going to hear more live events with our collective teams coming up, so stay tuned. The Carbon Coffee is a co-production of Canary Media and Postscript Media. If you want to see all our back catalog episodes, go to canarymedia.com or go to postscriptmedia.com. Sign up for our newsletter and you'll get all of our shows right there in your inbox. And thank you so much to Prelude Ventures, who is our backer. Prelude is a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate across advanced energy, food and agriculture, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. And uh, we'll catch you next week. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Carbon Copy. Carbon Copy.